Broadcasting from the Kingdom of Nye. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM from the Great Beyond. General Johnson Jamison from his bunker complex beneath the Saskatchewan crust as to whether Y2K can still happen. Then, <laughs> do you want to believe? The government doesn't want you to. Chris Carter, creator of the X-Files, will tell us exactly which episodes the government didn't want you to see. Also, Rod Sterling will join me live in studio. <laughs> well, in a manner of speaking. Was the Twilight Zone a documentary that had to be presented to the public as fiction? <laughs> Our time on Earth is indeed very short. No matter how old or young you are, you're a tiny slice of the overall cosmos plan. You're here for a very, very short time. We all are. And the big question, of course, is what happens after we end this physical life? <laughs> or it is ended, however you have it. It's a big question. And October, of course, is a great time to explore that question because one of the main things you look for is some, any evidence of life beyond the physical, the supernatural, the apparition, the unexplained, the Kachina doll that seems to move around the house by itself. <laughs> and there's no place more spooky and unexplained than central banking and the monetary order. Let us then enter another dimension, a monetary realm. Let us turn to the wild card line. Jeff, Emil, can you hear me? This is our bell. What is the scariest monetary story ever told? The one that's whispered to young economists as they're being tucked into bed to keep them on the straight and narrow. The story they think of when the orange demon moon rises over the horizon, bathing the landscape in a bloody glow. Well, I think Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Investments, and I agree on what that story is. And Jeff, I first heard it as a young economist. I was at Camp Womadichik and it was... Uh, it was the middle of October, and uh, we were all sitting around a fire, and uh, our camp counselor, the lead econometrician, he, he told a story that lasted all night, although it seemed to go on for decades. It was, it was a cold night. It was a silent night, although I thought I heard the hoo-hoo of an owl, the awoos of the wolf. I thought I heard screams too, Jeff, and it was called The Proliferation of Products. Yeah, I heard the same thing. And to me, it was equally scary. But my experience was probably a little bit different than yours, since it was basically just reading through FOMC transcripts and academic papers, which I think to most normal people sounds by it sounds worse than any any horror movie ever invented. Can you imagine being stuck in a library with reading nothing but uh, academic papers on the monetary system of decades gone by? I think that's about as horrific as it gets. Would you rather go through a haunted house or read economic, you know, FOMC statements. I think everyone would go with the haunted house. It would be a tough call for me because I hate haunted houses. 
And I hate FMD statements, so <laughs> I guess it works out, right? It's scary either way you go, because there's a lot in the FOMC statements as well as the academic papers that, that you just, you know, you have to think. At first, this can't be real, and second, these are the people who are supposedly in charge of, or at least that's what they tell you, they're in charge of the whole, the whole damn economy. And we're referencing an article that you posted at Alhambra Investments on the blog, and you posted it on October 26th, and it's titled, A True Horror Tale. Um, let's start with what is proliferation of products and then go into the story itself. Yeah, I think the, the, the scariest part of all of this is that it's a true story. And that true story doesn't start with proliferation of products. Proliferation of products was the phrase that Alan Greenspan used in June of 2000 in one of those FOMC meetings. So it's right there in the FOMC transcript from 20 years ago. And he was referencing a, a discussion about what uh, the Humphrey Hawkins requirements that the Fed would have to produce money targets. Now, Humphrey Hawkins or the, the Full Employment Act of 1978 came about because of the great inflation, which was Congress, freaking Congress, telling the Fed, you guys are doing such a horrible job. We are going to require by law that you produce money targets so that we can keep an eye on you folks because you don't know what the hell you're doing. So here they were in June of 2000. Those, those provisions requiring the money targets had sunset and they were debating whether or not they should be renewed and what the recommendation to Congress was. And Alan Greenspan basically said, and everybody agreed, we don't really use money targets because we can't define money anymore. So why bother continuing with it? And what he said was, specifically, the proliferation of products was so extraordinary. And what he meant was that the banking system had used forms of financial transactions in real economic situations that, that <clears throat> excuse me, that, that uh, performed the role of money that, that nobody could really define. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't uh, conform to traditional definitions of money. The Fed didn't know what the, the banking system has been doing, had been doing. And the proliferation of products that Greenspan was talking about wasn't something that just happened in 1998 or 1999. He's talking about stuff that was going on, going on starting in the 1950s and really caught on in the 60s and 70s. So we're talking about a quote from 20 years ago from today about money going off the rails 20, 30, 40 years before 20 years. So we're talking about a, a, a horror story, a true horror story that goes back more than half a century. And Jeff, as you discuss in the article, and, and you make analogies to movies and movie structures, and, and uh, you say, you know, you don't always just jump right into the horror story. What the, there's the buildup of the characters rationalizing away the psycho next door, the noises. And so in this case, we had trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars when that was real money, not like today, offshore, outside of the system that people were aware of, but they didn't do anything about it, Jeff. They, they said, eh, that's not screaming. That's just the howling of the wind. Yeah, I think, you know, the way you put it is exactly right, Emil, that, you know, in every good horror story, the first act is usually about how do we rationalize, you know, the audience can see the monster or the, the villain as the monster or the villain, or at least know, you know, in, in the movie Jaws, that we know there's a shark out there, right? And we're rationalizing away that the fact that the shark that's eating people left and right, and that, oh, it must not be what we think, or, you know, we don't believe your lying eyes. In the monetary horror story, 
we had this euro dollar that showed up out of nowhere in the in the mid middle 1950s took off in the 1960s but it wasn't just you know dollar deposits the term euro dollar itself is kind of misleading because that referred to a specific form what we saw in the 60s and 70s was a proliferation of products as greenspan said which meant that was qualitative expansion in addition to quantitative expansion and those two things went hand in hand right because the, the the proliferation of products meant banks doing all sorts of different things and doing all sorts of different things allowed them to do a lot more of all those different things and so it was really letting frankenstein's monster free into the world and then just rationalizing it as oh that's not frankenstein nor is it a monster it's just it's just a bunch of stuff out there that doesn't that we don't have to be concerned about which is you know the premise of a lot of horror horror movies qualitative and quantitative i often make that mistake and i i kind of sort of did it in the beginning of the show i was talking about the euro dollar system and that it was trillions big i always forget about the qualitative part and in your article you kind of you make an analogy and i hope we get to it here later about it's a, an, an evolution but before we get to that idea of evolution the qual let's talk about the qualitative and that there are a couple of characters in our scary story like in every movie who said who say you know what i don't want to go into that haunted house or i don't want to go into that spooky mansion even though the door is open why don't we go the other direction? And in this case, that role is assigned to Doofy and Giddy, which we discussed in our last episode, but perhaps not everyone stuck around to the end of that show. So Doofy and Giddy, what do they say? When do they say? What about the qualitative nature of this monster? Yeah, in terms of the horror movie structure, there's always that one character that pops up, usually the wise, grizzled old guy who shows up and, and gives you all sorts of exposition that you're missing, and you know, the, fills in the monster's backstory. And that's really, the, I mean, there's, there's in, the, in terms of our Eurodollar horror story, there's a couple people who fill that role. You know, one that you and I just talked about off air, Robert Russo was the one who studied the, the monetary system up until the 1980s and made all sorts of warnings about how, hey, these this proliferation of net, uh, interbank networks that he called them, you know, that was going to come back to bite us someday. Um, Guido Carli, who had been a central banker of the Bank of Italy, Robert Solomon, who was probably one of the wisest guys, you know, playing on his name, one of the wisest monet international monetary uh, watchers out there. Charlie Coombs, who had been the open market manager for uh, the, the Federal Reserve in the 70s, in, in, in the 60s and 70s, who said, this euro dollar stuff is playing hell with our monetary statistics. So, there are all sorts of, you know, these wise characters who showed up and said, beware of all the stuff you're not paying attention to because it could come back to haunt you. And of course, you know, Doofy and Giddy, what they did was they said, they put, <clears throat> excuse me, they put a lot of detail behind what Greenspan later called proliferation of products. They actually cataloged the proliferation of products in July, June or July 1981. They said, look, man, the 60s and the 70s had been a time where the banking system just went nuts experimenting with all kinds of things and they listed them and they showed you know stuff that 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 caught on they listed and discussed stuff that didn't caught on some of the experiments that didn't work like floating rate notes and euro dollar i mean all sorts of stuff but what they really said was that this proliferation of products all this financial innovation that's going on in terms of the monetary system especially the euro dollar system it had made what what they said what they realized was an external, the first, world's first external monetary environment, which was essentially 
a cashless virtual system, a reserveless cashless virtual system that operates essentially on whatever banks come up with. If a bank comes up with a certain kind of financial transaction and another bank says, yeah, I agree that's a financial transaction, we now have a monetary result even though there's no money involved in it anywhere. And it, it was true, not just in terms of the, uh, the, uh, the euro currency system, but also what the euro dollar had meant for other euro currencies, including euro euros, euro, well, there weren't euro euros back then, but euro yen and, and euro other, other offshore currencies. In other words, what they said was, the euro dollar as its external basis allowed, because of the heavy reliance upon swaps and other, other forms of these financial products, that you could have these external currency systems in any denomination. So it wasn't just an external dollar system, it was external currency in, completely. That's the, I'm a little confused on the external part, and I know you've just explained it right now. Is the quote that you referenced, the Charles Dickens analogy, is that referencing what you mean by external? If so, I can read it here. Yeah, that's what we're talking about external, is the fact that you know, when we think about a money system or a currency system, we think there should be currency in it, right? There should be something there. There has to be a unit. What we don't understand here is that the unit are not, you know, it's not a dollar. It's not a physical dollar bill. It's not even a digital dollar bill. It's a bank creation that they call a dollar. And so that's what makes it external. It's essentially IOUs of IOUs, right? We're moving beyond, you know, the physical world into the digital world and into exclusively a banking world. And, and in the, uh, you know, you think about it in terms of digital currency and cryptocurrency, the white hat, black hat kind of thing. In the euro dollar system, banks that participate in it are the, are the preferred providers and they're allowed to create and transact and redistribute these dollars that aren't dollars, that don't have any dollars anywhere. They're just simply numbers. It's an external system. Perhaps the most famous ghost story of all time might be, at least in the English language, would be Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol. So I'm going to read this explanation because I think it helps put into context it's the somewhat slippery concept. And you interrupt if you, if you want to make a point at any point. Quote, the phrase Charles Dickens used to describe insurance companies can be refashioned quite well to characterize, characterize this monetary arrangement. A bank that holds no dollars gets another bank that holds no dollars to guarantee that everyone has dollars. It's all a lie, but it works because nobody ever demands to be presented with dollars. This is, this is amazing that it can work like this. Transactions are simply settled and worked out in the format consistent with that. Bank B used to have a number that said Bank B was owed a certain amount of dollars, but then Bank B lent that number and nothing else, that number, to Bank C so that Bank C could claim an ability to get dollars when neither bank has any interest in obtaining dollars, just the whatever transformation that results from that transactions. Dollars are purely theoretical, thus dollars, in quotes. And is that what you mean by virtual, virtual currency? Yeah, and let's, let's strip this down into a basic, I mean, really basic stuff, okay? Let's pretend I'm a bank and you're a bank. I have no dollars because I don't have any dollars. I, maybe I'm a bank in, in Singapore, for example, and you're a bank in the Cayman Islands because you're in the Cayman Islands, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't have any dollars either. Yet, I will, you will, I will lend you dollars I don't have in the form of a swap because I say 
I'm connected to a market for dollars, this euro dollar market, where in the future, where I'm obligated to give you dollars, I can borrow them in that market. So I have no dollars, but now, you, but now I say I have dollars, and now you say you have dollars, but in the form of a swap that goes into the future. So it's I'm saying I have dollars in the future that you can use today because I promise to give you those dollars in the future that I don't have because in the future I will borrow them from the market. That's an external currency market. It's a reserveless system. And what we've done is basically engaged in a derivative transaction that is a proliferation of financial products, essentially, which, I, which is what I wrote and what Doofy and Giddy were writing. Neither one of us have dollars, but yet we've just created a transaction that's structured in the way that you end up with dollars somehow, even though none of us have any. Because, and it works because accounting conventions, bank conventions, whatever it is, our, my balance sheet is, 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 is treated as a monetary balance sheet and your balance sheet is treated as a monetary balance sheet. I have now an asset, you have a liability and monetary things get done even though there's no money involved in it anywhere. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the horror, the terror. If you look into the system, you realize it's all just built up on confidence, on promises. And that could give you pause. And then, Jeff, at the end, you say that, that the monster is not just your cobbled together Frankenstein demon anymore, that now it's become a trans-dimensional hyper-demon of some sort. Now that it can, it's a alien meets predator meets poltergeist because it's forward in time across geographies. It's it's uh, it's beyond the monsters that we were whatever con considering uh, the worst of, that we could imagine or the worst that central bankers could ever combat. They need to evolve in order to take on this hyper demon that exists outside of the borders. Yeah, and even Alan Greenspan, who's always been portrayed as the wise steward who had a control over everything. When you go back and you read some of the things, some of the speeches, I always go back to the 1996 Irrational Exuberant speech because people read that entirely wrong. What he said was, and I'll repeat it, what he said was, we have no idea if stocks are behaving rationally or not because we can't define money. We can't do anything with the monetary system. Therefore, we have no idea if, if the dot-com bubble is actually a bubble. And so he's portrayed as that wise monetary steward, but going back to the horror movie format, He's the, he's the Frankenstein. He, he's Dr. Frankenstein. He's the guy who helped create the monster who ends up committing suicide in the end because he, he let it free and never warned people sufficiently about it. And that's really, if, again, you go back into the transcript, you go back in some of the literature. Alan Greenspan in particular in the 90s was always portrayed as, yeah, the, I got this covered. But in private, he was worried that maybe he doesn't. And what happens if we don't have this covered? Which was the subject of the June 2003 FOMC meeting when they were debating why Japan wasn't being, wasn't being successful as QE. There was always in the back of at least Alan Greenspan's mind that maybe this money stuff will matter. And I think that's really the horror part of, of it from the beginning was that way back in the 60s and 70s, as the proliferation of product was really gaining steam, Economists and central bankers decided we don't need to pay attention to this stuff. We'll just move the federal funds rate around. We'll, we'll say that we're targeting inflation. We'll instill all this confidence in the public and the business sector and the financial markets. We won't worry about the details and we'll just control it from above through these signals of expectations and everything will just work out fine. 
or as we talked about last week, random good luck. Our good luck will just last forever. And that's really, I mean, that's a recipe for nothing other than a good horror, horror movie. Speaking of which, Jeff, as we wrap up, it's Halloween. You've got a bowl of popcorn. It's late at night. You pop in a video. Which one are you watching? What is your favorite horror movie? I don't think I have one. <laughs> I don't know. The fav- favorite horror movie. I mean, uh, that's not that really you- my thing. All right. All right. Fair enough, Jeff. I don't think anyone's surprised because you're reading FOMC transcripts, and we appreciate it. Yeah, no if you want real you. horror, there, there's a lot there. You, 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 truth is much stranger than fiction. Humphrey uh, Hubert uh, transcripts. Humphrey Hawkins. Humphrey Hawkins uh, videos of testimony. That's the horror. Is there too much American government debt? So much so that the feds themselves have to step in to support the treasury market lest the value disintegrate. That's a question that Jeff Snyder, head of global research, answered in a recent post at Alhambra Investments. And uh, it's called Quarrel with Quarrels, Over Too Little, Not Too Many. It was posted on October 27th. And Jeff, you start off the article by introducing us to subsidiary CCC. And I don't know if it's just this time of year us being so close to All Hallows' Eve, but just that name, it sounds sinister, it sounds suspicious, it sounds spooky, conspiratorial, like one of those corporations you learn about in a documentary, perhaps a documentary not unlike the 2004 American film Resident Evil about the rise of the undead starring Milo Jovich and Sienna Gilroy and Michelle Rodriguez, and uh, of course there was also Ali Larder. There were some dudes in it too, Jeff, but that doesn't matter. The point is, Jeff, is this article about the rise of the undead? I think it's about the rise of the undead and the, the undeadness of the undead, right? I mean, <laughs> why can't you kill this thing? And it's, you know, CCC is menacing, not just, the, you know, in the, the way that you're talking about, but see, the joke is CCC is triple C's or triple hooks, which is, a, you know, junk bonds. And CCC was a subsidiary of a company called Carlyle, which was a financial firm that most people should be aware of, but of course they're not because they think that 2008, the first global financial crisis was about subprime mortgages. Now, CCC, who uh, uh, Carlyle, a subsidiary of Carlyle, was invested in highly rated mortgage securities, and they were highly rated mortgage securities, and by and large, they weren't subprime toxic waste. Yet, this Carlyle subsidiary failed, was insolvent, illiquid. Uh, a couple of weeks before Bear Stearns fails, and in many ways, Carlisle precipitated the events that led to Bear Stearns' demise, which was really a demise. Getting, you know, getting sold with the Fed's aid by into J.P. Morgan's hands isn't really a res- isn't really the rescue that authorities want you to believe it was. So Carlisle was one of those backstory parts of the system going wrong and how it was going wrong and why it was going wrong that explained a lot about what followed, which wasn't recovery which wasn't a flood of liquidity, which wasn't successful monetary policies, quite the opposite. Because when you look at highly rated mortgage securities and a firm that only, only invested in those, and we're using them in the repo market as collateral, and when the repo market started to reject, not subprime, but prime and highly rated prime securities, that was a signal that it wasn't a subprime problem or a Carlisle problem. It was a systemic repo problem, therefore systemic dollar problem. 
So that subsidiary failed in March 2008 or Carlisle failed in 2008? I think it was just the subsidiary. Is that right? And it's sort of interesting that uh, I guess they weren't big enough to be bailed out or sold off by the federal government. Yeah, and it was well. It was a smaller fund, and of course, you know, it's, it's maybe it's 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 um, strange that they weren't because it was highly connected. Not mm-hmm. just a, you know, one of the uh, executives at Carlisle was a guy named Randall Quarles, mm-hmm. who had been undersecretary uh, in the Treasury Secretary or the Treasury Department undersecretary for, I believe, domestic banking. So, I mean, this is a guy who was connected in the Bush administration, left there after saying everything was great in 2006. The, you know, the whole world's awesome. Banking system's wonderful. We've done a great job. Jump ship to Carlisle, I believe in early 2007. And then, of course, Carlisle is, plays a key role in at least identifying for people paying attention what was really wrong during the first global financial crisis. And then, of course, Quarles makes a reappearance in 2017 when of course he's he's you know failed upward like the rest of them appointed and uh, nominated and uh, approved for a for a spot on the federal reserve board that's right and uh, so yes he was in 2006 the undersecretary for domestic crisis domestic crisis domestic well, it was a domestic finance exactly. <laughs> there you go same people. thing at that time right? right finance crisis it was all the same but he didn't say it that's the point and i guess because he was in a political position, so he had to always provide, well that's, well, that's what politicians do, not leaders. But okay, so fine, that was 2006. He didn't see the biggest crisis of 80 years coming. Okay. Then, a few years later, he becomes, a few, let's call it a decade, vice chair of the Federal Reserve for Supervision. And the point where, the reason we're bringing all this up is because a reader, a listener, a watcher, recommended that we talk about Randall Corliss's speech. And we did. But guess what, Jeff? You talked about the part that you thought was important, but that's not what the financial media was focused on. Which part were they focused on and what did you talk about? Well, it's actually the part that was important because the financial media missed the, the, how it played the role and what the everything else, or what everybody else is talking about. What Corliss said basically was, look, the banking system is fixed. Now, he took credit for it when we all know the banking system fixed itself starting in August of 2007. And that's the reason why Carlisle failed and Barrel Stearns failed and Lehman Brothers failed, because banks started stopping doing the insane proliferation of products that they had been doing up to that point and began to clean up their balance sheets because, by and large, they realized the Federal Reserve was useless. Therefore, they're out there on their own, and if they want to engage in stupid stuff, they're going to end up like Bear Stearns or Carlisle or Lehman. And so banks began, began to, to clean up their own balance sheets, undertake less risky behaviors, which, which in the current context means that we're not going to expect another Lehman Brothers because banks don't operate like Lehman Brothers used to operate. But that's actually a problem because the system, the dollar system, the global dollar system, that proliferation of products requires banks to act in very risky behavior. So you have, it's either one or the other. If you want the dollar system to grow and the economy to globalize and grow with it, you need banks taking on risks. If you want safe banks that are never going to fail, then you're not going to have dollar system growth and then you're not going to have economic growth and globalization. Or the only other option is to redo the entire system. Those are the only options that we really have. And we've, what, what, what's, what's happened over the last dozen years is banks have shrunk. They've, they've, they've improved their balance sheets 
and the Federal Reserve says that's a measure of success. And that's what Quarles was saying. However, however, there was this big problem in March. Okay, the banking system was great, performed awesome. So maybe the Fed did its job, but yet everything else was screwed up. Markets went into fire sale liquidations all over the world. So did the Fed do a good job? Well, if we think about the Federal Reserve as a central bank, then no, it couldn't have. But the Federal Reserve is not a central bank. The Federal Reserve is a domestic bank regulator, which, by the way, is core specific purview. And what he said was, yes, the financial system was a total mess, but it ain't our job. Yeah, he come, his part of the system didn't fail. The banks did okay. And so the speech that everyone is talking about is the one of a few weeks ago. But you brought up the 2006 speech where he said, everything's fine. And you also brought up the 2018 speech where he said, quote, I am fairly optimistic about the current state of the economy along many dimensions. It has been quite some time since the economic environment has looked so favorable as it does now. But Jeff, in late 27, early 2018, what was happening in Japan? What did the Wall Street Journal think was happening yeah, the 2017 and really early 2018, we started to see signs that no, Mr. Corals, things were not favorable. In fact, they had been turned highly unfavorable already, especially in January 2018. You started to see the euro. You started to see Japanese uh, banks selling their treasuries again, as well as other foreigners. And again, that's common misconception is going back to the, you know a long ways that the U.S. government can never sell enough, enough of its debt without foreign investors. If foreign investors ever start selling, oh boy, the federal government's in big, big trouble. The treasury market's going to collapse and crash, except that wasn't the case. Of course, remember, December 2017, the Trump administration passed tax reform, which expanded the deficit greatly. So in early 2018, you had Japanese selling their treasuries. At the same time, the treasury was selling a lot more treasuries, and then it was supposed to lead to this epic disaster and a dollar crash, treasury crash, all these things even though that was supposed to be you know, good for globally synchronized growth. But yet, when you look at what's happened since 2014 in particular, foreigners have been buying a lot less treasuries and in, in some cases outright selling them. Yet, when they're doing that, by and large, the treasury market is rallying. Interest rates are falling, not rising. And the reason is because of all the stuff that Randall Corps and the Federal Reserve never pay any attention to, which is the global dollar system. When there aren't enough dollars in that dollar system, foreigners have to sell their reserves, which are largely locked up in treasuries, in order to try to offset the dollar supply their local banks can't get from the euro dollar market. So foreign selling of treasuries is not a negative for treasuries. It's a positive, it's a, it's a signal because it says, hey, there's a dollar problem going on, which, which tells you there'll be increased demand for treasuries, regardless of the supply of them. Which brings us to the most recent speech by Corliss. And the part that everyone focused on was the intimation that the Fed, the government, would have to step in to help support the market because, as he put it, foreign and official private investors were selling treasuries. And he noted that the intense and widespread selling pressures appear to have overwhelmed dealer's capacity or willingness to absorb and intermediate, intermediate treasury securities. Thus, therefore, the Fed or the government needs to step in. 
But then Jeff, you ask, well, how come no one ever asks why this dealer capacity was overwhelmed or the desire disappeared? Yeah, why, Randy? Why were everybody selling treasuries? I mean, that is, he's acting as if this is a separate and distinct issue. There's the banking system and there's treasury market and the two don't ever meet. You know, they're not connected in any way. And so what he's saying is, and we go back to, remember March, um, not only were stocks selling off, but for a while there, the long end of the, of the treasury curve in particular was rise, rates were rising rapidly as liquidations hit the treasury market too. And we've talked about that before, the bifurcation between on the run and off the run. But to a guy like, you know, Federal Reserve guy like Randy Quarles, what he's saying is that that's not our job either. We have to step in and clean up the mess in the treasury market, which it's, it's not even the cart before the horse, as I wrote. He, he doesn't even know which is the cart and what's the horse. You know, why were everybody selling, foreigners in particular, why were they selling treasuries? It wasn't that the treasury market got too big. It's the dollar shortage got too big. The liquidity got so low, intermediation stopped. Dealers were shy, as you pointed out, Emil. All of this stuff is related, and that's why the selling of treasuries happened. So what the Federal Reserve should have done, if it wasn't actually a central bank, is not, is not look at this like, oh, we need to clean up the mess in the treasury market. It's to say, oh, my God, we did such a bad job in the global dollar system. We should have fixed that. Then there wouldn't have been any mess in the treasury market to begin with. They've got it all wrong because they look at this from the perspective of a domestic bank regulator, not as a global dollar central bank, which is what's really lacking here. So it's the dollar shortage that got so bad that not only were foreigners forced to sell their treasuries, dealers said, we're not even intermeeting, especially on the off-the-run securities, which we're not sure are going to have a market. And so it became a self-reinforcing thing. The dollar shortage made dealers act shy. That shyness meant the dollar shortage got bigger, which led to more selling in treasuries and other markets, which meant dealers got even shyer. And there was no one there to step in and break that cycle, which is the role of a central bank. So these guys didn't, not only did they not perform the role of a central bank, they don't even know what the hell the role of a central bank actually is or what they should be doing. They're looking at it from the, from the end result and saying, well, it must be too many treasuries because the treasury market was a mess. No, genius, there weren't enough dollars and that's why everything was a mess. And then did the mess kind of fix itself? Because that's a question that sometimes comes up is uh, how did the system correct itself? Is it because the system found the dollars in March or that the worst of the, the, the funnel, the constriction passed? What, what was it? I think it was some of both because what you end up happening was you find a new equilibrium. You find mm -hmm. a lower level or lower state. Think about it in physics where you know, things reduce to a lower energy state. They find a new equilibrium. So after a massive amount of dollar destruction, leverage destruction, economic destruction, all of these things happen. I mean, just tremendously unnecessary destruction up and down the board. And in addition to that, you had the March bottleneck going by. And so, you know, things started to go right again. Dealers started to step in because there were values. There was prices at, at lower levels. There was, there was opportunities to come back into the market. And that's why, you know, for one, you saw treasuries. Uh, the prices, in, in, in especially the long end, rallied sharply. So they went down in the initial crisis, and you know, uh, yields went down, then they went way up, and then they went way down again because the, the, most, the worst had passed, and everybody wanted to get back into the treasury market again. Scary stuff, Jeff. I asked you earlier if there are any 
horror movies that you enjoy? You said not particularly, but I'm guessing then you don't have any favorite horror stories. Is that right? Or horror I think poetry? we're telling them. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. We might have to change the name of this episode to, uh, you know, monetary horror tales, you know, something like the Twilight Zone, Twilight Money Zone. Monetary Horror Tales. I like that title. We'll go with it. Well, my uh, favorite poem happens to be uh, Darkness by uh, Lord Byron. It's about the end of the world. It's a beautiful poem, people. It's not my fault. I like it, okay? I just, I don't know why people call me Dr. Doom. It's a beautiful poem, all right? Forgive me. And I also like uh, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, The Raven. But there's one that I really enjoy as well called Nauseous Nocturne. And it's by Bill Watterson. And I'm going to read two stanzas from it. I kind of adjusted it for our audience. Okay, so here, bear with me. Another night deprived of slumber, hours passing without number. My eyes trace around the room. I lay dripping sweat, now quite certain that tonight the final curtain drops upon my short life's precious play. From the darkness by the chair comes a noise much like a printer, a maddening burr, burr, burr sound. It seems some ill-intentioned economist anticipating I'll invest is spooling bank reserves on the ground. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. I'm going to keep my day job, but, you know, that's not the worst thing I've ever done. That is, no, it's, but it, that is a one scary tale if you think about it. Let's talk about the disease we don't pay attention to. We're all paying attention to Ebola, the coronavirus, the plague. I know I do it personally. Zombie diseases, that's top of my list. The disease we don't pay attention to often enough is the dollar disease. And today, posted at Real Clear Markets, is an article by you, an essay, the dollar disease well predates the coronavirus. Jeff, before we even get to the dollar disease, you want to talk about first about the greatest quarter in American economic history. Well, according to GDP, it was, but then you bring up something called GDI and subsidies. So tell us a little bit about this greatest quarter, what the difference is between GDP and GDI and the subsidies. Well, you know, what we just, what the government just released yesterday was the uh, real GDP growth for the third quarter of 2020, which was around 30%, depending. I mean, if you do the continuously compounded rate, is 27.8%, which was, I mean, much, I mean, it's not even close. We've never had any kind of quarter as good as this one. And of course, it, it follows one that was the worst quarter ever. So we have the worst quarter ever by far, and then the best quarter ever by far. And the impression is that, hey, it was really easy. We shut the economy off. We turned it on. We went right back to normal. We went right back to, right back to even again. No, that's not quite the case. You know, you know, after the third quarter, performed much better than even the most uh, optimistic people had anticipated, at least in the U.S., it does seem like we're on the right track. But then you look at, you know, for every GDP, there's a GDI, right? I mean, the GDP is the expenditure approach. We I don't spend know money what, on things. Tell me, I don't know what GDP and GDP, GDI is. What? what well, like I said, GDP is the expenditure approach. It's looking at the uh -huh. economy for people who are people, businesses, governments spend money. For every dollar that I spend, though, uh, that's income to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So on the other side of GDP is something called GDI, which looks at everything from the income perspective rather than the expenditure perspective. 
And GDI also includes income to the federal government because, well, the federal government and GDP contributes to the economy by spending. We won't get into that argument. That's the way that the accounting works. And so if the government has expenditures, it must also have income. But that income can't be a double counting. It has to be um, indirect income through things like, you know, production taxes and import taxes and things like that. Those are the things that go into GDI and the other part on the side of government's GDP. However, you know, there's transfer payments that go out uh, on that on the income side too. subsidies to businesses. You think about farm subsidies, railroad subsidies, you know, industries that the government has said for, I guess, legitimate reasons that we must keep these industries afloat, even though they never turn a profit and they might be wasteful uh, boondoggles, whatever. The government does that. And so these subsidies, you know, they never really were that much. They, I think the, the most was around $82 billion, uh, at an annual rate in any quarter. So it was basically a rounding error. And that subtracted off of the, the income tax or the uh, indirect taxes in the GDI calculation because it's a transfer payment, right? It's the government saying we're taking some of our income and diverting it to these industries because we want to keep them afloat. And so for GDI accounting, a subsidies is a subtraction. Until the second quarter of 2020, again, subsidies had been very minor, very limited. And then all of a sudden, you know, COVID, the CARES Act, and all, uh, in, the th in the second quarter, subsidies were now a trillion at an annual rate. 1.1 trillion, I think, was the number. And then in this awesome, really great third quarter, the number went up to 1.2 trillion. Hmm. So you have a trillion, 1.2 trillion, even though they're subtracted off of the government's number because they're a double counted subsidy, which is a redistribution of money into the, into the private economy. What that's telling you is that that's how much the government has influenced other parts of the GDI calculation that allowed us to get, first of all, in the second quarter to keep it as bad as it was to keep it from being worse. And then in the third quarter, one of the big reasons why it wasn't it was as good as it was was because there was a 1.2 trillion in subsidies buried in there somewhere throughout the especially the GDI part of the of the uh, of the data. And so, Jeff, if I'm doing, I know this isn't apples to apples, but GDP about 20 trillion, so quarterly about five trillion. Could we then say that the government was contributing one-ish trillion to a Five trillion dollar quarter. Well, no, it's the one trip, one point two trillion is an annual rate, too. So Got it's it. one point two out of I think 18. Okay, uh, the real GDP in the third quarter went up to about eight, 18 something trillion. So 1.2 trillion of that, somewhere in there, 1.2 trillion was the federal government's subsidies. You mostly, you know, we know what these are. I mean, these. These were these grant or these quote unquote loans that everybody knows are going to be forgiven and turned into grants. So basically the government is subsidizing not just boondoggle industries like Amtrak. They're also subsidizing now huge chunks of lots of industries. And, and that, I'm sorry, go ahead. Did you no, I was just going to say that's a different kind of recovery story than mm -hmm. one where you think organically the economy rebounded all on its own to almost close the gap to where it was in the fourth quarter peak. Of last year and now the concern is some of that one trillion is going to be pulled back and we're worried about what you call the permanent income hypothesis whereby well you tell people what it exactly means and what your concern is that if this 
the difference between a one trillion stimulus windfall and how the economy will behave if it expects permanent income. Yeah, what we're really talking about here is artificial economy versus the underlying private economy, right? So when we add the subsidies in there somewhere, however they get in there, they're, they're, they're subsidizing business that has, that has uh, impacts up and, down the, uh, up and down the line, yet businesses themselves aren't acting as if that, that, that closes the gap, right? Because we know from labor market data in particular, not just jobless claims, but even the headline establishment survey and the household survey numbers, they're not even anywhere close to getting back even again. So how, I mean, what's going on here? GDP says we're, we're getting real class, really, really getting close to getting back on track, where the labor market says we've got a long, long ways to go. And the subsidies are the difference. Companies are getting money from the federal government and they're staying afloat, yet they're not hiring back workers. And why aren't they hiring back workers? And the reason they're not hiring back workers is because they're looking at these subsidies as they windfall, which is what the permanent income hypothesis says. People and businesses react to one-time or two-time payments very, very differently than they do to regular income streams, right? And that's, I mean, that's intuitive. It makes perfect sense. You're not going to change your behavior if, if you find a $100 bill on the street just laying there. You're not going to say, oh my God, I found $100 bills. Now I'm going to go buy a new house. You're just not going to do that. And so from a business perspective, you understand that your business has fallen off and it hasn't come back. So even though the government has paid you and maybe, maybe made up a big part of that difference in revenue, you're not going to hire back workers because there's no work for those workers to do, right? You're not going to treat the government payment as if it was your revenue returning back to normal. And so when you have a recovery or rebound that's this artificial, the worry is what happens when you take away the stipend, when you take away the windfall? Then you're back to what the underlying condition in the private economy is. And if the underlying, in the private, underlying private condition in the economy isn't very good, then you've got big trouble. And I think that's the way markets have started to trade over the last you know, four or five months now. They're starting to say, yeah, we know about this stimulus stuff, even though we don't know where it is in the GDP figures. And we can't find it in GDI because it's a negative subtraction off of the government indirect taxes part. You know, you can't really see it that easily. People know intuitively what's going on here. We know the score. The government is heavily involved in the economy, and the private economy itself isn't rebounding nearly as much. And you list in your articles, you spend a couple of paragraphs on it, on the markets, which are oil, the dollar, and stocks. And if you want to say anything more about that, okay. If not, we'll move on to the underlying rot, the dollar disease that has been affecting the economy before corona ever arrived. And you do that through the lens of a recent BIS, Bank for International Settlements, report that was published in August 2020. Jeff, uh, what was in, no, June 2020. What was in this report? Uh, why did you raise it? Well, first, I mean, before we get to that, let, let's, mm -hmm. let's stop and why does this dollar stuff matter in the context of the coronavirus and recession? Mm -hmm. what we're talking about in the permanent income hypothesis is also risk perceptions, right? Businesses hire and fire and, and do all sorts of decisions, make all sorts of decisions based on their perception of not just the economic environment, but their own liquidity situation. 
So if you're a company that just experienced the commercial paper market completely shutting down in March 2020, that's going to factor into your decision making, right? Even though the government's paying you money that's, you know, essentially a subsidy or a windfall, you got to remember, if I bring on more workers and business doesn't come back and we go back into the same kind of situation, I might be dead because I can't count on the system to provide me, borrow the funds I need for working capital like I normally did. So this dollar stuff matters in the real economy too because it, it plays on liquidity perceptions. And what's your biggest expense as an employer? If you're worried about liquidity and survival, your biggest expense is labor. And so you're not going to bring on additional costs unless you're absolutely certain of the risk environment. You're absolutely certain that I can keep my company liquid to pay those payrolls. I can keep, I can keep the, paying my own bills. I'm certain that the, the economy is coming back well enough that I have work for these people to do once I start hiring them. So if you're, if you're concerned about liquidity, if you're concerned about the perception of the private economy outside of these subsidies and stimulus, it's going to change the way you behave. That's what we call second and third order effects, which is a negative pro-cyclical result. Businesses, as you just said, need money, working capital. Where are they going to get that money? They will go to a bank, a U.S. bank. And here's the aha aha moment, Jeff, that you reveal in this article via the lens of this BIS report. Where do U.S. banks get most of their money to then lend? The Fed. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, Sorry, you that was speechless. No, I, had to, I, I, had, so I just wanted to see your face. <laughs> you, I no. hope that got caught on the I camera because I was I, no, dead pale. In terms <laughs> of, I think of, in terms of what's happened since March, that's the impression most people are left with. They, the bank reserves, right? I mean, there's trillions of them. That's where base money, that's where banks get their money. No. The BIS said most of the U.S. domestic financial system, I think to the tune of six, some, six point something trillion, they get dollars from offshore. What? Can you say that again, Euros. Jeff? People don't believe it. I didn't believe it. This is what? They are funded by and large through transfers from their offshore subsidiaries. So they have, so a U.S. bank has a subsidiary in London or the Cayman Islands, which isn't hey, really hey, a bank. Hey. It's basically a name on a door. And so they operate in these, these offshore centers and they borrow dollars offshore and transfer them to their, their domestic uh, parent companies. And that's been happening for a very, 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 very long time. U.S. banking system depends upon borrowing dollars from the offshore system. Well, the good news is, Jeff, that the Federal Reserve is in charge of U.S. dollars, and if U.S. dollars are offshore, the Federal Reserve, in conjunction with other central banks around the world and the BIS, are on top of this offshore dollar system. They have been for decades. They've been regulating it, and they've been ensuring that it operates in a healthy, sustainable manner. Yeah, that's a joke too, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's, no, it's yeah. that's the point, right, Jeff? That's yeah. The BIS, the BIS report, which, by the way, the BIS report wasn't just you know a couple of researchers at the BIS. It was a working group that's chaired by a named Sally, uh, by a woman named Sally Davis, who worked for the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. And in this report, they they you know it's mostly about the U.S. dollar funding and the international perspective of it. What they continue to say and what they continue to show is that they don't really know what the hell's going on there. They have no idea. They use the term opaque, and they use the term opaque repeatedly, which is a very kind and charitable way of saying 
we can't really tell what's going on. We don't know how big it is. We don't really know how these banks do this offshore dollar stuff. So we just kind of put together some haphazard, you know, half-assed estimates, and that'll just have to be good enough. Jeff, if you have any other comments on this article, let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to ask you what your favorite Halloween candy is. <laughs> I think I want to make one more comment, which is that, look, they even singled out the repo market, which is you know a topic that we talk about all the time because the repo market is repo market is the central what the central bank should be it is the central the center point of this offshore dollar system what they say in this report is although repo markets are more transparent now than before the first global financial crisis data gaps leave them relatively opaque there's that word again opaque this is particularly true for activity among non-us entities that takes place outside the United States and activity outside the tri-party repo market in the United States, which, by the way, they don't specify here in this section, that activity that's opaque is by far the biggest majority. The offshore, unregulated, unmonitored US, uh, US dollar repo system, most of which never touches the United States or domestic banking system to begin with, they have no idea what's going on in there, which given what we just said before, how US banks, domestic banks that the Fed does care about rely so heavily on this offshore market for dollar funding, you think this would be kind of important. You think they would be saying to themselves, gee, maybe we need to take a really serious look at all of this proliferation of products that have been going on for five and six decades. It's 2020 for God's sake, right? We had a breakdown in the system 12 years ago. Why is this stuff still opaque? And the answer, I believe, is simple ideology and the fact that a central bank cannot look at this stuff in the right way, look at the monetary system in the right way, without admitting everything they don't want to admit, which is that the central bank is in the central bank and that they have taken their eyes off of this gigantic, gargantuan monetary system for so long, and they let it, this Frankenstein monster get so out of control that it has wrecked one decade and it has and it has is now in the process of wrecking another oh oh boy jeff jeff we live in a twilight world and there are no friends at dusk please give us a little bit of warmth as we leave the show by telling us that your favorite halloween candy is not candy corn yeah, I would say that too, but you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go with another bummer here because I'm diabetic, so Halloween candy is not on my menu. <laughs> so you you'll have to come up. With, I mean, look, this is a Halloween episode, so we'll, we'll have to leave it on a dark note anyway.